Khaleesi. What a moment. Uh, there's much that I want to say, but I'll let our captain speak to us. Uh, captain Khaleesi said, since I've been alive, I've never seen South Africa like this. With all the challenges we have, the coach said to us that we're not playing for ourselves anymore. We're playing for the people back home. This is what we wanted to do today. We appreciate all the sport, people in the taverns and the shabins, farms, homeless people. There were screens there and people in the rural areas. Thank you so much. We appreciate the sport. We love you, South Africa, and we can achieve anything if we work together as one. Message of hope that I trust is embedded deep in your soul as you remind yourself that part of the beauty of being so diverse in this nation is that uh, we get to lean in around united goals and achieve so much more than we could ever hope or imagine. A couple of moments that stood out for me afterwards when Sia was trying to convince anyone to join him in holding the trophy. Just a picture of humility. He started with the coach. He said no. Even Faf said no. Cheslin was like, no. Watch the footage. He's like, I don't want to do this alone. But they said, no, no, no. We appreciate you trying to include us, uh, and, but there's also a unique role you need to play. And as captain, it's your job, so go and do it. Another thing that stood out for me was the fact that none of us did anything but yet we feel so victorious, right? <laughs> I mean, absolutely nothing. They couldn't hear us as much as we screamed, right? And I know they said they read the tweet, but probably didn't read your one, okay? But yet there's a lift that happens. And I'm always reminded that the major story in the scripture of David and Goliath, such a picture of the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? Because David on his own, in defeating Goliath, had his victory counted for every single soldier that never went into the battlefield. That's what we have when we talk about good news. We have Jesus Christ, the righteous dying for the unrighteous, his victory given to absolutely anyone who's prepared to identify with him. If you identify as a South African, you're walking around London today, Sydney, anywhere, just going, oh yeah. Even though you didn't lift a finger, there's a confidence to your life, there's a hope to your life, there's a joy. Johnny Clegg is playing in the background. And ultimately... You didn't lift a finger. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. We can go into life with righteousness that's been given to us, as was declared by Debbie earlier in our time of worship, just a sense in which we're chosen, precious sons and daughters, even though we didn't lift a finger. And sometimes that's the hardest message to accept because somehow we feel like, no, 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 we needed to have get, gotten onto God's good side first. There must have been a lovable side to us. Our good deeds must have outweighed our bad deeds. But the good news is not that. It's that his victory is given to us. And like Sia, that allows us to then move beyond us and, and look to include others and look to share our moments with others. And essentially, when we go, go into this next series of interhealthy relationships, we are going to be looking at a whole variety of different relationships. And I want to really stress the fact that it's probably going to take us getting over ourselves, moving from me, 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 to we, we, we. What does it look like? In marriage, what does it look like in parenting? What does it look like in our work environments? And you might not think all of those apply to you now today, but I'm going to make a case that there's some thinking that we can do now as we prepare for these roles. And even something like parenting, there might not be any children right now in your life, but you are parented by someone. And what does it mean to honor those mothers and fathers? There's a lot that we can learn, but unline it all. It's this movement from beyond me to we. So let's dive into our passage. We're going to be looking at marriage in particular for the next two weeks, and we've got a span of Scripture to get through. So I'm going to start reading from verse 22, chapter 5 of Ephesians. It should appear on the screens. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the water of by, by washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother, a father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's God's word to us tonight, and there is a lot in there. Some of you have shocked expressions on your face. Others are, uh, have energy surging through your body. There are words like headship, like submission. There's some sitting here that say, how are we even talking about this in a world that we should be focused on smashing patriarchy? How is it that we're even talking about this in 2019 in Cape Town? Others are looking at this going, I don't know what the big deal is. Marriage represents for me a piece of paper. It's largely irrelevant. It's certainly failed in my experience in life. And I don't really see the big deal. Wherever you find yourself, I'm hoping that we can together get clarity what God's word has to teach her. I'm trusting that there'll be a healthy desire to, to, see, to see healthy relationships formed in our lives and to set the pillars in place now already. Some of us over-desire marriage and, and long for that to be the thing that defines our lives. Others under-desire marriage because of pain inflicted and, and perhaps an experience of, of, of great loss. And we come at this with different attitudes and at different stages of life. Some of you knew in advance that we we're going to talk about this passage, and even though uh, you've suffered from uh, the hurts of a divorce or the death of a spouse, uh, you still chose to be here, and I'm grateful for your commitment in doing so. Others of you didn't know we were going to talk about this, and right now you're wishing you hadn't come. But I want to invest, uh, honor the investment of your time and suggest that there's much we can actually learn from this passage. And in fact, I'd say there, there are three pillars that really can anchor our thinking and will bear up under the weight of scrutiny. And the big thing which I want to say before diving into unpacking this is that there is a tendency to come to this message and look at it through our 21st century lens and not actually appreciate how radical it would have been to the original hearers to understand for the people in Ephesus just what a different way of living this was representing and how radically life-giving it was. So the, the deal today is that we're going to look at what it would have meant to people in the first century Ephesus, and then walk it through to today and get to the place, place of saying, God, is this your wisdom for us and how can we apply it? So three pillars, as I said, as we look at the scripture. The first pillar is this one. Covenant needs to be over contract. Uh, for those mathematically inclined, the crocodile is pointing towards covenant. It needs to be bigger than contract. Where are you getting this? Well, there was that verse that said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. 
Remember, it's first century, it's Ephesus, it's the third biggest city in the region. It's on the coast, it's a port, it's very cosmopolitan, there's lots of life, there's lots of trade, there's lots of industry. And in the Roman Empire, households would have consisted of husbands, wives, children, and bond servants or slaves, uh, employees. And that would have been the household as it would have been made up. Aristotle provided three rules for the household. What were those three rules? It was quite simple. Wives, you need to obey the husbands. Children, you need to obey your parents. And uh, employees, bond servants, you need to obey your masters. It was all about obedience. So you can imagine in that system there was really a huge um, opportunity for tremendous abuse to take place. Uh, those in power essentially viewed their, which were the husbands, viewed their wives, their children, and those that worked for them as their property. It was part of the estate. It was their property. Women had no voice in the legal system. Uh, marriage was simply actually for passing on genes. The far more profound unit was the family unit. If you study the history, men would often go and, and spend campaigns at war for decades. They would come back in their 30s, and that's when they would look for a marriage partner who would typically be a teenager, 16 to 18. They would get married, but largely they would live separate lives. The lady raising the family and the man still going around, doing his political thing, doing his career thing, hanging out with his family members. That was primary to the family that he had just started. And into that toxic and abusive system came the gospel, came Jesus Christ. And there was a whole new way of doing households. There was a whole new way of forming a unit. It didn't remove the idea of leadership. It just drenched it with a whole other level of sacrificial love and redefined every relationship in profound Never been seen before ways. And so how radical would it have sounded in the first century for you to leave your family, to take a a step towards your wife and to form a new household, to form a new unit, to be told that there's, there's a greater connection that needs to be formed here. That the promises you make to your wife or to your, to your husband is forming something of a covenant, of a relationship that was going to trump all other relationships. This foundational bedrock was now going to be formed, that a marriage was going to be promise-keeping to one another, a covenant to one another. And it's very important to distinguish between that radical shift towards covenant and what we might today regard as contract, which they at that time regarded as contract. See, contract is about legalism and leverage, where covenant is about love and loyalty. Contract says, as long as we both shall love, covenant says, for as long as we both shall live. Contract says, I'm in this to the degree that you're in this, to the degree this works. Covenant says, even when you falter in your commitment, I'm still with you. I'm still all in. Contract calls for the signing of names. Covenant calls for the binding of hearts. I think we can all identify with the self-interested nature of some relationships that we've gotten into. Kind of says, I'll, I'll, I'll be in this for as long as it's fulfilling me. I mean, what's essentially happening here is it's, it's me, 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 not, not we, we, we. Covenant relationship is one in which each party says, I'll be there for you, period, full stop, end of story. Radically different. I don't know if any of you have watched the movie The Notebook. The Notebook. Very soon into our relationship, Leanne, uh, we've been married for 11 years, brought out the DVD, which she had bought. And she said, we're going to watch this movie. And afterwards, I knew this was an important moment. She looked at me and said, what do you think? And I knew I knew a lot was riding on this particular conversation. Spoiler alert, good-looking people meet in the young uh, stages of life, fall deeply in love. And then towards the end of the life, she has got Alzheimer's, but yet every day the husband serves her and reminds her of the story and keeps talking to her. And they, and they, and they capture those two moments, 
so brilliantly in the movie. Now, here's the thing. They leave out 50 years in between. 50 years. 50 years of hard work, of covenant, of relying on your promises, of being there for one another. I'm grateful for the bookends getting captured, but 50 years in between. We need to remember those 50 years, which were daily bringing each other and reminding each other of promises granted to one another. When people exchange vows, they do so vertically before God, and they do so with each other, and those vows are important. They form a covenant. And that grows over time, and it does develop into what we see at the end, but we mustn't forget that development. Over and over again, they'll pop up now a reminder in verses 25, 28, and 33 to love. Husbands, you to love your wives. Husbands, you ought to love their wives as their own bodies. And each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. Over and over again, this reminder that what's happening here is calling for a commitment that goes beyond contract, quid pro quo. It's not a feeling. It's a way of treating someone. So often I have the privilege of marrying people and I'll uh, have that moment of vows getting exchanged as a, as a key moment because I said, this is what we're actually all called to witness. This is the big moment. Before God and before each other, they are making future promises. So it's not declaring just current love, it's declaring future love and future promises. It's not saying I will always feel loving, but it is saying I will be loving. Love is not something that just happens inside of us. It's something that happens outside of us as we make the object of our promises more important than ourselves. It's not something I receive from you as in a contract, but it's something I promise to give to you. And why it's so important, and, and, and the notebook kind of captures this, is that we can, we can have a picture that, that as long as the sparks and the compatibility at the start is good, it's like a fire gets started and the fire just burns brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. But those of you that even know the basic biology knows that you know that dopamine just can't run for that long, right? It just can't. It, it's got a dip, whether it takes six months or yeah, you need to come back down. Your body can't operate at that level. And when that happens, it's like, oh, the fire's going out. Perhaps I chose the wrong person. The contract is not bringing what I expected it to. And there's a fear that can come over us, a concern. What the notebook beautifully is telling us is perhaps we're thinking about the wrong way. Perhaps we should have a bit more of an agricultural metaphor, the planting, seeds in the ground, that over time start to grow and build and eventually will provide shade for others and fruit for others and life for others. Far more a healthy picture of what committing to love and committing to covenant will do over time. It will build momentum. It's an important picture to have because we can get ourselves stuck if we're looking for fire and we're looking for compatibility and we're looking for contract. Well, what we're essentially looking for then is the right person who kind of we know we're going to get a good deal from. How I Met Your Mother uh, had two helpful phrases which I remember, which was, there's always a reacher and a settler in a relationship. Basically saying, hey, in any relationship, there's someone reaching who kind of goes, hey, they went to that school, they look sorted, I'm going to go for them, you know, come on. And then there's the settler that goes, oh, maybe I could have done better, but I'll just settle. You know, and this is kind of the logic that's let in. And all of us are looking like, we're the reacher, man, we're the reacher, where's my person? And if we just get that person, then we're sorted. Unfortunately, that's not a very helpful paradigm to use. A sociologist, Stanley Halvas, says it best, and I'll put the quote up on the screen. He said, the self-fulfillment ethic, which is this look for the compatibility, assumes that marriage is primarily about personal performance and happiness. It's very destructive to marriage. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we will marry the right person. 
that overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage, which is this. We always marry the wrong person. We never really know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a little while and he or she will change. For marriage being the enormous thing it is, means we're not the same person after we have entered it. Primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. In this environment, if you have a contract thinking, it's not going to work. You need to go in with covenant thinking. You need to go in there, not me, but we, preferring the others. With your eyes wide open, you commit to those vows, and you live them out for 50 years, even if the movie never appears for those 50 years. But what will happen if that takes place? What, ha- what happens when you, when you put covenants and commitments ahead of contract? Well, I'd suggest you get to develop a second pillar, which is this pillar of oneness. This pillar of oneness, which is actually greater than partnership. Oneness greater than partnership. Verse 31, it says, again, this radical message, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. They're going to form a new unit. It has the incredible part. It says the two will become one flesh. That there's this promise of oneness. There's, a, there's something different here to partnership. Um, I often think of that first century uh, streets of Ephesus and the guys come around and they knock on the door and they say, hey, bro, we're going to go out now. We're going to go drinking, maybe go to the temple of Artemis. There's some temple prostitutes. Let's go hang out there. Just us and the bros. And kind of the guy goes, no, man, not tonight. I'm trying something new here. What are you trying? Well, this is guy, Jesus. Um, I've heard about him. I've, 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 I've got this, this message of his great victory being given to all of those that align with him. I've, I've experienced forgiveness, this righteousness that's been given to me, and I'm, I'm applying his teaching to my whole life. And he's got some radical things to say around what it looks like to do healthy relationships. I'm committing to my wife. We're becoming one. It's incredible. That's how those early conversations would have started. All their clumsiness and all their confusion, there would have been a, a change of direction away from partnership thinking to oneness, to deep intimacy, to exclusivity. And I want to be careful with my language here. Not exclusivity as in it's just us and we form a tight lager and no one gets in, but exclusivity as in fulfilling the vows, forsaking all others and being united to you. And in that intimacy and that oneness, actually creating the perfect environment for a generosity that overflows and includes all others. If you find yourself locking in and not including it, I think you've misunderstood the beauty of what's being described here. So when I describe oneness, I'm not talking about an exclusivity. I'm talking about, I'm talking about a, a, a forsaken of all others, but a generosity in how you live that out in your marriage. So contract thinking would say, nah, I'm, I'm looking for someone who's going to make my life uh, convenient, someone to enter into a good partnership with. Uh, dishes, cooking, laundry, run, you know, runs errands, looks after kids. That's kind of a good deal. That's what I'm looking for. Covenant thinking says, no, no, no. At a deep level, I want to know and be known. At a deep level, I want to love and be loved. And the beautiful thing about covenant uh, thinking is that in our friendships, this is, this is how we should be loving each other already, even before entering into marriage. A, a, a deep sense of, of sharing our lives and moving towards each other, regardless of what we get back. Now, that might sound lofty and ethereal, and I want to try and ground it in some five practices which I would suggest help to build oneness. The first uh, practice is to pursue intellectual oneness. I'm not talking about sitting down and working out Mbawini's midterm budget and whether you think, you know, indicators indicating. I'm rather just saying, hey, 
share your thoughts with each other. Share your thoughts. What's on your mind? So you go through your day. You, you're not just seeing what's happening. You're thinking about it. Sometimes those thoughts can remain unexamined and unexplored with other people. So I'd say, hey, why don't you pursue intellectual oneness and share your thoughts with others? When two minds link, there's a building of intellectual intimacy. And as you do that, I think you'll actually automatically start to then pursue emotional oneness. You'll actually start to get into that level of conversation that doesn't just go, I think, but sort of say, I, I feel. This quote from Ephesians around being one flesh actually comes from Genesis 2 at the sign of the first marriage where it says that Adam and Eve were joined, they became one flesh, and the next says, says they were naked and they felt no shame. When they speak about nakedness, they're not just talking about physical nakedness, they're also talking about emotional nakedness. There was a complete vulnerability and openness to one another as they shared and discussed their emotions and feelings. It might mean that you're willing to say things like, gee, I'm fearing a lot of this right now, I'm really happy in the last 24 hours. Let me tell you, I'm really, really happy. And making such statements, we're choosing to be intimate with our spouses to reveal something to them of what's going on in our emotional world. And this is incredibly important. My experiences, even when I was dating the aunt, was a bit um, interesting because I, I essentially would, would try and put the best foot forward whenever I was with her. I thought to be impressive to her would be just to show how sorted I was. I wasn't someone who would share you know, the valley experiences. I might go through valleys, but I'm only ever going to tell how I managed to overcome them stories. And what Leanne experienced then was just a, an emotional distance as this person just kept pushing forward how, how organized they were and how, how together they are. Again, it's, it's a stereotype, but I think it's helpful. As men, we often see our, our independence as being, as being more and more mature. If I can sort my own problems out, I'm mature. And what Leanne's experience was, no, no, as I lean into my deep friendships and as I share my problems, together we work it out and together we come out the valley. And that's greater and greater maturity. And so you can imagine when you put the two of us together, I'm going, why do you keep asking me about my stuff? I'm going to sort it out and show you how awesome I am. And she's like, no, 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 this is much better. You sort your stuff out together, and together we come out. And we both looked at each other. We often found ourselves in the days of marriage. No, we both love each other. Yeah, we both love each other. Why are you making it so hard? Why are you making it? It's like, it's like ah, and then we go back up. No, but we love each other. Yeah, we know we love each other. Okay, let's try again. Why are you making it so hard? And, and we figured out a lot of it had to do with, with this a misunderstanding of what emotional oneness would look like and me wanting to only share it after the valley where Leanne was saying, no, in the valley, that's where we get to do life together. Third pursuit of, of um, oneness would be around friendship. Friendship, the, the truth that it's a commitment, it's a covenant to actually being best friends, to establish friendship as the foundation of your relationship. Fun, teamwork, trust, communication, loyalty, laughter, those are all part of what it means to be a good friend, and these are the building blocks. The Bible speaks quite a lot about friendship. It's available for us to learn, and it's applicable to all our relationships. And it says things in Proverbs like a, a friend loves at all times, or a friend sticks closer than a brother. Tim Keller defines friendship as real friends always let you in, they never let you down. Real friends always let you in, so that vulnerability, that sharing of, of their lives, they never let you down. There's a consistency, there's a, there's a presence, and there's a genuine love and commitment to your well-being. This is what Tim and Kathy Keller say in their book, The Meaning of Marriage. They say when dating or living together with someone you're not married to, you have to prove your value daily by impressing and enticing. You have to show that the chemistry is there and the relationship is fun and fulfilling or it may be over. We are still basically in a consumer relationship or, a, or maybe a contract relationship using my language today. 
And that means constant self-promotion and marketing. The legal bond of marriage, however, creates a space of security where we can open up and reveal our true selves, can be vulnerable, no longer having to keep up facades. We don't have to keep selling ourselves. By the way, that's why if you're single or dating, accepting this principle can drastically change the way you seek a marriage partner. You can often think of the prospective spouse as a lover. You know, notebook, the early years. And so we're looking for someone where there's attraction, where there's chemistry and spark, and we hope that a little bit of friendship might get sprinkled on over time as a bonus. But rather, we should first screen for friendship. Look for someone who seeks to understand you, someone who makes you aware of God's truth and how that can set you free. Someone who you can explore friendship with is someone in which romance and, and the prospect of marriage can build tremendously. By the way, just a very practical thing, um, guys, often how ladies enjoy building uh, friendship is by face-to-face time, connecting in that way. And ladies, uh, men generally prefer shoulder-to-shoulder time, doing stuff together, getting on with it. And we'll open up actually in those environments a lot better. So let's stretch ourselves in very practical ways, which we can not insist on our style as being the only way, but adapt to building friendship both face-to-face and shoulder-to-shoulder. Maybe it's a very practical thing. Look for hobbies or things that you like to do and do it in the name of friendship. Build those building blocks. Let's keep going there. We can pursue spiritual uh, oneness, intimacy. You know that picture of a triangle? At the apex is, is God. How do two people on the other sides get closer to each other? Well, actually, as they pursue Christ, they look to him, they will get closer to each other. If they look at each other, there's very little movement, there's very little progress. But as they look to God, there is movement forward. How do you get closer? Well, you, you can sit together in church and speak about what God said to you on the way home. You can pray together. You can read scripture. There's much that we can pursue in this area of spiritual formation and how we can help each other. And then finally, as an encouragement to pursue sexual oneness. We're going to have a, a night together in two weeks on Monday for all the married couples. I won't spend a lot of time on this, given the uh, makeup of the audience, other than to say at this stage of life as a married couple, um, sex comes quite naturally. But as kids come, there's a real need to get practical and plan things. Um, you need to cut things out of your life like Netflix. You need to understand your differences between you. And um, I'm realizing I'm cutting out a lot yet, but the bottom line is come chat to me afterwards. If you're married, <laughs> it's probably more helpful uh, tonight. But I, I want to do make the point, if I look uh, at you guys, that this is an area of our lives that can cause so much hurt, so much pain, and I hope I've shown you that when we talk about one flesh, when, when God reveals one flesh, he's talking so much more than just this side of sexuality. See, he's talking about covenant. He's talking about all of your life being shared. Intellectual oneness, emotional oneness, friendship, the, the spiritual. There's so much more. And where we harm ourselves is that we look for that intimacy exclusively in this domain of sexuality. Hookup culture is rough. It's, it's swiping in the right direction, and you can uh, have a whole new world opened up to you. But I want to really, in love, tell you that it, casual sex is a, is a distortion of what God has in mind. And you might say, but Paul, it's two consenting adults. We're just getting together, and I'm kind of manage the situation. I don't mind us being sexually naked and enmeshed with one another. I don't mind the fact that, that it kind of gets clumsy. And I would say, you know, it, it makes a massive difference because it distorts what God has in mind. You see, God's saying, either be naked in every way, on, on every level. Don't do it at all. 
And those of us that have violated this, if we're honest, we might even uh, be violating this right now. Need to need to stop and 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 see loving, loving God moving towards you, saying you're giving yourself up for someone who hasn't made a commitment that can carry the full weight. And likewise, they are giving themselves to you without making this commitment. You're violating not just God's standards, but you're violating yourself and one another. And that's why the wounds can be so deep. And many of us carry deep, deep wounds. The good news of Jesus Christ is that his victory covers us, that righteousness covers it. It's full healing, full restoration, to be, to be presented in front of him uh, without blemish, uh, white and pure, is the good news of Christ. But we need to step forward into the light, receive his grace, and receive his wisdom to us, and put him at the center. This, this oneness is an all-of-life oneness. It goes beyond two consenting adults trying to work out a partnership and try to make it work. It doesn't work. The pain and the wounds are deep. But as we step into the light, God is good to us, and deep oneness can result. So the pillars here, they're pillars of, of covenant ahead of contract. If that's understood, then we start to understand there's oneness ahead of partnership. And then finally, there's complementarity around other models. What are you talking about, Paul? I'm talking about the fact that although we are one, there is differences that are involved. There's, there's complementarity. In the first century, there were also many different models, different ways of doing marriage that would have been discussed. There would have been the model of a husband as, as the head of everything, as Aristotle ruled. There was then a swing back where many would go and have um, a female leaders, a matriarchy, where there would be a kind of a whole gathering, a worship of, of female gods, and that that would be the emphasis. And so it's not just in our century that we see kind of new models emerge. It's been throughout history. And I quickly want to fly through what some of these models look like. The first one would be chauvinism. This is the model in which the man dominates. We're not equal. The man is superior. What he says goes. He gets the remote. She gets the beer. You know the deal. Ultra-feminism comes up in response to that and says, no, 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 again, we're not equal. She is superior. She understands better what should be happening, and these selfish boys need to take a seat. In short, the model is male and female are different. They're not equal. Women are on top. Third model is unisexism. In this model, there's an emphasis on equality between men and women. And in addition, there's an emphasis on interchangeability. It doesn't matter. Besides uh, having kids, um, there's really no difference, and there shouldn't be indifference, and there's an interchangeability around gender roles. Complementarity says, no, in this model we agree with unisexism around equality. There is complete equality in value and dignity of the husband and wife. However, they are made different within marriage. They are given different roles. Notice I'm not talking about society. I'm not talking about anything outside of marriage. We're talking about healthy relationships and we're talking about a passage of scripture that speaks to the relationships within marriage. So if you're a husband and you're a wife, you're equal but have different roles. That is the teaching of scripture. And these words, headship and submission, might be strange words, might be terrifying words in our culture, but we need to understand them for what they would have meant in their day and how they apply to us. On our website, we've got two papers, the one by John Dixon, which I'm going to refer to quite a bit now, as well as by Taryn Williams, which you can click on to read even more on this topic, because I understand is an important one. In Colossians 3 and in our passage of Ephesians 4, Paul remarks that wives are to practice submission. You can see it on the next verse. Uh, there it is, submission to their husbands in the context of their marriage. 
And that straight away caused a reaction because I think we often think, Paul, are you advocating to go back to the 1950s? That kind of attitude, and the answer is no. We are so grateful for the feminism movement, which in many ways called out the kind of toxic culture that had developed in our day and age. And we can thank God for that social phenomenon. But as with any statement in the Bible, it's important not to read our text through the good of modern assumptions. And in the post-feminist culture, we might be rightly suspicious of anything that sounds even vaguely reminiscent of the attitude with which feminine has long been in battle. Biblical framework over and over again endorses full equality between husbands and wives, between men and women. The Bible does not endorse patriarchy, but it does teach that men have an honored commission within marriage. It has no relevance, as I said, to the marketplace, to the workplace, but it does have relevance to the institution of marriage. So the biblical notion of a husband's headship has entirely to do with service, the giving of oneself for the good of the other. And Jesus, over and over again, is provided as the obvious paradigm in Scripture. If husbands are to take the lead in anything, it is only in their Christ-like willingness to suffer for the good of the family. It's in this context that submission is to be understood. Moreover, it is noteworthy that the submission commands of all three New Testament texts are addressed directly to wives, not husbands. They say, wives, submit to your husbands. You can see it there. Nowhere do we find husbands ensure that your wives submit to you. I take it, therefore, that it is not for the husband to work out the application of this command. Husbands have their own domain, which is on the next slide, in which they are commanded to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Christ love the church? He went to the cross. That is the level to which he was prepared to go to serve you and I. And can I pastorally just point out that in my years, I've never seen the following approach work. I've never seen a husband get anywhere by saying, submit to me. It's almost guaranteed to fail if you get to that stage. And ladies, you have my permission to go to this verse and tell your wives, if you're asking me to submit to you, I'm asking you to die for me. Because that's what it says in Scripture. I'm conscious that I might be losing a few men at this point, but I'm being intentionally provocative because I think we can sometimes read for the other party much more than we read for ourselves. Scriptures make clear that submission is a basic attitude of the heart expected of all Christians in all relationships. Carl spoke about this last week. Go look at the verse before. Ephesians 5 verse 21, Paul urges the whole church to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. To submit means to willingly yield oneself in the service of another. It is a concept completely at odds with our world, but it is at the heart of biblical ethics. The notion derives clearly from Jesus, who not only submitted to his Father on the cross, but served us, yielding up by us his life. It is this logic that probably explains why we see submit out of reverence for Christ in verse 21. There's no issue of equality at stake in the biblical challenge to submit to one another. Just as Christ's submission does not imply inferiority to us or the Father, so our submission to one another says nothing about our relative status. And so this biblical exhortation, wives, submit to your husbands, found in Peter and Paul in their writings, in no way implies the inferiority of the wife to the husband. It is rather a specific application of a general scriptural command to submit to one another. 
essentially it's saying to the wife, hey, there are many things. You need to love, you need to respect, there are many things. But pay special attention to this. If you want to have healthy relationships, pay special attention to this call to, to submit and to respect your husband. And the exact same wife where husbands, there are many things you need to do for your wives. You need, to, you need to care for them, you need to nourish them, you need to cherish them, you need to love them. But pay particular attention to this call to to lay down your life and, and love and cherish your wife. To, to love them means to determine to live for the good of the other. It's again a fundamental call to all Christ followers, but particularly for husbands. And so it's the specific nature of these commands. The, the, uh, the husbands are told to give priority to loving, cherishing, and nourishing, and wives are told to give priority to, to submitting and to respecting. And it's in that special emphasis that, that healthy relationships can truly flourish. My experience of this is that sometimes we, we as, as men, in our clumsiness and in trying to understand it, can be backfooted in two ways. One is we can hear both views and hear them and then say, okay, we'll do it your way. And allow that option to happen. And then when it goes pear-shaped, you go, oh, well, told you. <laughs> it's like, should have done it my way. Went with you. you know. And, and we can have this childish kind of uh, whose idea was better. We obviously want to hear from each other and we, want to, and we want to make a decision. And then regardless of whose idea it was, you, you take the full consequence, take the full responsibility. And you learn and you grow and you end up putting your shoulders back and saying, it's tough sometimes, it's hard to make these decisions, but we're doing this together. And I'm not going to blame, I'm going to, I mean, my clumsiness, learn to do this better and help serve us better. And my experience is that our emotional range is not as, as wide and we sometimes are clumsy in how we do it. And wives, this is where that call to respect comes in so beautifully because in all the kind of mess of a poor decision, how we pay shape, to be loving, to be kind, to be respectful, doesn't heap further pain upon pain. It actually creates a safe environment to process and kind of come around and better understand who I am and how I might have led in the wrong direction. It really doesn't help to pour uh, cynicism and sarcasm and like, oh, do you call that a date night? Was that a date night? It's like, oh, you know. The amount of times I've rushed off to a restaurant and it's full and it's full and the end's kind of graciously gone, um, so you, you didn't make a reservation? I'm kind of like, no, this was spontaneous, Paul. And, um, and spontaneous Paul has learnt, has learnt over many times that perhaps it's not the best way to do things. But but by giving special attention to how practically to love and not be spontaneous, Paul, but how to do it better, but to have been able to process that with a tenderness and a kindness, it's, it's just made it better. It's, it's equality, but it's different. And so I would encourage those married couples here, I'm, I'm saying to you, for the next 30 days, for the next 30 days, perhaps just change your thinking in these areas and say, you know what, uh, husbands, I'm going to cherish and I'm going to nourish my wife. I'm going to think of practical ways. I'm going to study her and I'm going to understand what that would look like for the next 30 days. You don't have to tell her that you're doing it. Just do it for the next 30 days. And likewise, wives, can I encourage you to give special priority to that encouragement to, to respect your husbands, to, to create an environment where they can process with you and where you be their loudest supporter. Just try it for 30 days and we'll chat in a month's time. I'll be, I'd be surprised if you didn't notice just a different cohesion and a different level of health. Finally, as we come into land, we're going to um, have a time of response. So I want to tell you that this passage already, we haven't covered all of it. There's lots in there, like, what does that mean without blemish? How does that all work? And so next week, I'm going to be preaching again about what the purpose of marriage is. Why are we doing all this covenant, oneness, kind of complementarity stuff, equal but different? What's it all about? What's the purpose? What's the place? Where does it fit into a 
very busy life. And we as leaders would love to invite you to ask any questions. During the week, after Sunday, we've got space to address them on, on um, our time together next week, Sunday. But for now, uh, married couples, you've got your 30-day challenge. For those that are um, single, can I encourage you to maybe think about the ways in which contract, partnership, and, um, and that way of thinking has resulted in a grid which your whole life is seen through now, where you're looking for that person who's compatible with you above that person who could be an incredible friend, it, it could be an incredible basis that would build momentum towards, that person who, who could um, be, be you could just be not even having on your radar screen for now. And also at the exact same time, knowing that both parties, no matter, no matter where you find yourself, do not ultimately find ultimate uh, covenant in one another, ultimate oneness in one another. The incredible picture of Scripture, the incredible radical message we started with is that it's Christ alone who secures us. It's his covenant promise. He didn't look at us and say, you bring your deal. He, he looked at us and said, no, you can't, but I'm making a promise to pour my love on you, to, to pour my righteousness on you. I'm, I'm, I'm one God, certainly, but I'm making space for those I've created to step into relationship with me. The love that I have, I share with each and every one of you, whether you're single, divorced, uh, uh, your spouse has, has passed away, whether you're married, no matter where you find yourself, there's, a, there's an inclusivity to God and his love is poured out on each and every one of us. The, the, the Bible starts with a wedding and it ends with the wedding of the church and Jesus Christ as we all presented to him holy, blameless, clothed in righteousness has been described already. We're not looking for perfection in this community but we see perfection in our Savior and we look to him as we move towards healthy relationships. As Sia said, we come from different backgrounds, different cultures that different hurts, different places we watched the rugby but we look forward, we can, we can see one God who wants us to move towards him in hope and experience relationship and its health. Can I invite the band up and I'll ask you to stand with me? We've got a prayer and ministry team. They're not superheroes, they're just people that have a gift for praying for people and have a desire to see people set free. And perhaps this is an area of your life tonight where you've said, Paul, I've, I'd appreciate prayer. Perhaps I've had wounds in my life in this area, and I'd, I'd love to know what it means to be clothed in righteousness, to experience God's forgiveness, to experience His victory in this area. Perhaps there's a desire in your heart that says, actually, I've been so hurt in this area, I'm not even open to relationships, I'm not even open to going there, but there's something of, of uh, renewing in my mind. I, I want to pray around some of the changes that are happening, some of the things I feel uh, need to be brought before the Father. There's a team at the back. I'm going to ask them to go there. If you guys are part of the prayer team, get out of the pew. Make your way there. And we're going to be singing a song about the love of God. And we're going to make ourselves available to that love of God and say, God, we want to be reminded of your victory and who you are. Regardless of where we find ourselves, the different stages of life, we want to be aware of your love. But then we also have a beautiful moment of being able to minister to each other, the body of Christ, serving each other. So I'd love to create that space if you'd like to have prayer, to go to the back and to approach one of those guys. Hey, appreciate prayer in this area. Breakthrough. Beautiful thing is that we don't just take it to each other. We take it to God and then we get to, to serve each other in doing that. So Father, as we come to respond to you now, I'm so aware of all the voices in our lives that would discourage us from slowing down in a moment like this and we want to distract us. We want us to think of things that disqualify us, that 
that make us unworthy of your victory being applied to our lives. And God, I speak against that right now. And I want to remind each and every person, no matter how dark their past or how deep their wounds, in you there is fullness of life, there is abundance of life, and there is a victory that sets all of us free. And as we sing of your love now, God, would you move by your Spirit. We make ourselves available. Holy Spirit, come and move amongst us. Come and make your voice louder than any other. Come and make your hope our greatest treasure. God, we don't come to you to have healthy relationships. We don't come to you to find marriage partners. We don't come to you to have great marriages. We come to you because of you. Because of your beauty, your glory, your power, your perfection. And God, as we, brothers and sisters, that want to receive prayer tonight, I pray for the courage for them to respond and to go and ask for prayer. I do pray that we would point towards you in glorious ways as we worship you now. Amen.